We are glad you're here. If you have your Bible there in front of you, like Adam mentioned, uh, make your way to the book of James there in the New Testament, the New Testament book of James. And uh, while you're turning there, let me, uh, let me just remind you of something that's going on later tonight. Uh, and also every Wednesday night at 6.30, we have an online prayer service on our Facebook live page uh, for our church. And here's what we found over these last few weeks is that it is a, it's a powerful time, even though you face the barrier of, um, of having uh, or not having the ability to see one another, it is still an opportunity to engage and more importantly, to even pray together as well. So tonight, 630, Wednesday night, 630, uh, head on over to our Facebook page for our church, First Baptist Church of the Islands, and uh, join us in prayer there. And uh, it's just a brief 15 minutes or so, but man, really, really powerful. So glad you're joining us this morning as well. So we're going to start a brand new series today on the book of James. So the name of that series is Wholehearted. Now, before I share a little bit more about where we're going to head in this series, let me just uh, speak to those who've been a part of these services for a few weeks. Uh, we've been in a series over the last three, maybe four months even, called Nuts and Bolts. And we've been looking at the basics, the nuts and bolts of what it means to walk a walk with Christ and, and, and uh, really live out a Christian life that hits the bullseye from God's perspective. We're going to take a break from that series. We've got two more messages. And I would say maybe the two most, really the most exciting messages for me to be able to share, we're going to hold off on because they're going to be better served when we are together in one space again, and when we're able to actually engage with people <laughs> in a way other than online only. And so we're going to come back to those last two messages, but today we're starting a brand new series. It's going to come out of the New Testament book of James. We're going to move through the book of James, and I'm super excited about that. And the series is called Wholehearted. Now, here's what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be looking at specifically what it looks like for every single detail of every single area of every single life to be lived in wholehearted devotion to the person of Jesus. That's the goal. That's the aim. Not as much the practical aspects like we focused on in the Nuts and Bolts series. Certainly there'll be some practical aspects woven into every message, but the focus really is for us to come to grips with what God calls us to, to raise the bar. Now here's something for us to keep in mind in this particular series. This is a very short book of scripture. It's only five chapters long, 108 verses all total. But in those 108 verses, what we find is that God really speaks deeply into the life of the follower of Jesus. And he uses it through this instrument, this man named James. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever known that person, maybe that man or that woman, who um, they, they never find it difficult to just get in your face and say the hard stuff. Do you know that person? Do you have somebody like that in your life? Maybe you're married to them. Maybe you're sitting next to them right now. Maybe you work with them. Maybe they're a, a close friend or just somebody that it's an acquaintance for you. But it's that person that comes to mind. Maybe you're that person. And, uh, but it's that person who doesn't mind getting in your face and saying the hard things. Well, James is that guy, okay? And when we move through this book of scripture, what we're going to find in these five chapters, in these 108 verses, is that God uses this person, James, to speak into our lives in a way that is both compelling, but also it just gets right in our face. And what you're going to find in this book of scripture, these five chapters, is that James goes to the hard places. And like a doctor who presses, right, until he finds the pain so that he can ultimately get to work and help to bring healing, James does the same thing. And he hits on some really hard topics and he gets in your face and he says some things that, that are not always easy to hear, but ultimately what God's desire is, 
is that he does this to bring us closer to himself. And so the series is called Wholehearted, looking at every, ultimately every detail of every area of every life lived out in wholehearted devotion to the person of Jesus. And so James is going to, he's going to cut to the chase and he's going to dig out by the roots He's going to dig out by the roots any mentality that the Christian life is only a bunch of words, right? It's just a, it's just a talk, that we talk the talk. And let's be honest, we know the lingo, don't we, if we've known Christ for any time at all. We know how to say the right things. We know the Christian jargon. We know the words to say. We can talk the talk. James doesn't care about talking the talk. What he cares about is that we walk the walk in a way that ultimately brings us closer to Christ and increases our influence out in the world where God has left us for this season of our lives so that we can help to lead people closer to Jesus. So this book is going to be encouraging. Uh, even this morning, there, there's going to be an element where he starts off with a very encouraging tone. There are going to be places through this, through this uh, series where you're going to be incredibly encouraged, but there are also going to be places, again, where, where you're going to be offended. You might get your feelings hurt, and it's not going to be in the way I say it. It's going to be because James beat me to it. He said it first, but remember God is for you. He's not against you. He has a plan for your life. And a part of that plan is living every detail of every area of every life in wholehearted devotion ultimately to him. I was thinking about this earlier this week when I, when I was looking at this message and preparing that James would be completely blown away today if he could jump in to the 21st century ordinary Christian church, ours included, right? He would be blown away by the mentality of the average follower of Jesus. Not someone who doesn't know God, not someone who is, is living life in rebellion against God. The average church attending follower of Jesus, James would be blown away by the mentality that exists, that is rampant throughout the church of living life with one foot in the world of devotion to Christ, but another foot firmly planted in the world. He would be blown away by that mentality that I have this Jesus segment of my life where my foot is planted in the Christian faith, but then there's also this other segment that's off limits to the Jesus part. It's separated. It's a different compartment, but there's this other segment of my life where my foot is firmly planted in the world, and, and, and the influence of Scripture doesn't exist there, right? The, the devotion that exists to Jesus over here doesn't exist there. James would be blown away by that mentality that's rampant amongst believers today. James would be blown away completely and totally by, by how but we, we, we as believers treat personal holiness, right? It, it, almost like it's an, an, an addition to our faith. It's an add-on. It, it's, it's an accessory that, that we know Jesus, and that's the most important thing. We've given our lives to him. We've trusted him, right? We're part of a church where, you know, we're engaged in that aspect of it. But James would be blown away by the mentality that just treats holiness as something that either we can take it or leave it. And again, he is going to deal with some really, really hard topics here, and he's going to rattle the cage, and he's going to, he, he's going to get in close, and, and he's going to offend in a good way. But at the same time, man, I'm telling you, if we get in this together, and if we really uh, focus on what God says, because this is God's word beyond it being just James's words. James was just the instrument. This is God's word, that if we really focus on what it says, and if we lock in, and more importantly, if we apply it, what we're going to find is, even though our cage might have got rattled and we might have got our feelings hurt a little bit, and it, it may have just sort of thrown us off a bit, if we chew on it and we embrace it and apply what he says, man, we're going to be 
we're going to be closer to Christ and we're going to have all the things that God intended for us to have as followers of Jesus in the first place. And so this morning, we're going to start right here, James chapter 1. So here's a little background. So who is James in the first place? There are numerous people by this name in the New Testament specifically. But the James who wrote the book of Scripture that we're looking at towards the close of the New Testament is James, the half-brother of Jesus. You say, well, Brooks, what's up with the half-brother thing? You know, I don't quite understand why he would be considered a half-brother. Well, remember when Jesus was born, he's God, so he didn't begin his existence on this earth. Uh, He's always existed as God, Jesus has. But when he came into this world, he was born... And he began his, uh, his, his life and ministry in this world as, as a human, right? He took on flesh and blood. Jesus, 100% man, 100% God. Well, remember from the Christmas story in Scripture, Luke 2 and elsewhere, that Jesus has, had an earthly mother. Her name is Mary, and he had an earthly father, Joseph. But Jesus was not conceived of Joseph. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So later, Mary and Joseph, as a married couple, would have other kids. And when they would have other children, obviously, uh, it would be in the normal relations that we're accustomed to today as people. And so for James, his mother would be the same as for Jesus, Mary, but his father would be the earthly Joseph. He would not be conceived of the Holy Spirit in the way that Jesus would be. So James is the half-brother ultimately of Jesus. In the book of Galatians, Paul is writing to the to the believers in the region of Galatia. And he refers in Galatians chapter one, he actually refers to James right here who wrote this book as the Lord's brother. And, uh, and so James would have been up front. He would have been up close and personal with Jesus. He'd been raised in the same house. Uh, he, he would have eaten the same food at dinner time that Jesus would have eaten. And uh, he would have been right there seeing how he lived his life and uh, as part of Jesus's own earthly family. Well, later in James's life, ultimately, he's going to pastor the Christian community, the church in the city of Jerusalem. It would have been the first Christian community that we read of in the New Testament. Soon after Jesus would be uh, crucified and resurrected, this church would be born. James would be the pastor. He'd be the leader of this church. And uh, he would ultimately lead them through some very difficult times. And when he wrote his book, it would be, many believe, the first book of the entire New Testament to literally be written. Now, the events are going to happen after the Gospels. The placement in the Bible is after the Gospels. But when it came time to write the New Testament, it's as though James would raise his hand first and say, I'll go first. And he wrote his book of Scripture. And most believe it was the first book of the Bible, or first book of the New Testament, that was actually penned, actually written that we have today. And so it is an incredibly powerful book. Let's go ahead and jump in, looking at what it means to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus. Every detail of every area of every life lived in wholehearted devotion to him. Chapter one, verse one. Man, I'm super excited and uh, hope you're ready to jot down a few notes as well. So James begins and he says, James, a bondservant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, let's just pause for a second and unpack a little bit of that verse. James uses the term bond servant, and it's interesting because he tells us a little bit about himself at the time that he would write this particular book of Scripture. Bond servant would be exactly what you think of. It means one who has relinquished the rights of their life. In this case, it wouldn't be against his will. It would have been a willing decision. He would have relinquished the rights of his life to be a follower of Jesus. 
He considered himself to be a bondservant, a follower, one who is in yielded surrender to the person of Jesus. Now, you may think, well, that, that must have been an interesting decision, right? Because wasn't he the half-brother of Jesus? Yes, he was, like I explained earlier. And there was a time in James' life when he, when he wasn't convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, take a look back in the Gospel of John chapter 7. Uh, John, in his gospel, helps us to go back behind the curtain a little bit before James would write his book of Scripture. There's an event out of Jesus' ministry. Look at what John says here. He says, now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here, go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. Now, they were saying this somewhat mockingly, and you're going to see that in a second. For no one does anything in secret when he sees him, when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers were getting a little bit irritated with Jesus at this point. And the words that he was saying and the things that he was alluding to, to being the Messiah, to being God, and to having, uh, to, 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 to having the power, right, that comes with being God. And his brothers in mocking fashion are saying, listen, if all this is true, man, why don't you just get out there and show everybody? You know, if you think this is who you are, just get out there and prove it. That's kind of what they're saying. And, and here's the thing. Verse 5, John gives a little commentary. For not even his brothers, that would include James. For not even Jesus' own brothers were believing in him. There was a time in James's life where he didn't trust that Jesus was the Messiah. He wasn't convinced of it. I mean, I mean if you were to ask him out of the playground, you know, hey, hey, James, isn't your, isn't your brother, uh, uh, you know, isn't he, uh, isn't he the Messiah? No, he's not the Messiah. Are you kidding me? Man, I live with him. I mean, yeah, he's perfect, never gets in trouble, but I mean, come on, the Messiah. And when he would get a little bit older, you know, and let's just say for a moment, James goes to work and he punches the clock and his coworkers say, hey, man, I've been hearing this stuff around town that your brother, he's, he's saying he's God. He's like, oh, come on, are you kidding me? Yeah, he's a great guy. And again, you know, mom and dad never had to get on to him ever, but. I mean, God, are you kidding me? James was not convinced. And yet he's writing his gospel, or writing his book. Go back to James again, chapter 1, verse 1. And what you see there is that, that he ultimately considers himself a bondservant. What made the difference? It was the crucifixion and more importantly, the resurrection of Jesus. It wasn't living with him. It was seeing that this man, Jesus, proved himself to be God. You know, just last Sunday we celebrated Easter. He proved himself to be God by rising from the dead. He came back to life. I mean, only God can do this. I mean, that was the moment. That was the moment when he was convinced. And he began to follow him. And he began to lead a church in Jerusalem, the earliest Christian community that we see in the New Testament. And he began to write a book of scripture that you're reading out of today, 2,000 plus years later. And it was because of the convincing nature of the resurrection of Jesus. So he says, I'm a bondservant. And he writes to the 12 tribes who are dispersed. The book of James was written originally to Messianic Jews. That was, that was really the, the original audience. It's not any less applicable for us. But it was written to Messianic Jews, a Jewish congregation right there in Jerusalem who had turned from the Jewish faith to place their faith ultimately in Jesus. So James continues. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Well, we can really apply this verse well, can't we, as a group of people, people 
scattered all over the world. And when we face the same exact experience, the one thing I can think of in my lifetime uh, where we in the world have faced the exact same thing, virtually every single country. And James speaks to that trial and he says, consider it all joy. This would be an example of that person you may know who doesn't mind getting in your face. (laughs) And when you're going through that difficulty, that person shows up and they say something like this and you just want to like slap them, right? Because you don't want to hear how you're supposed to consider it joy. Here's the thing though. What James is saying is exactly right. And he knows far better to consider the hardships and the trials the difficulties of your life. And a lot of things can fit in that word trials. Coronavirus challenges could fit there in that word. Health issues, job loss, financial problems, relational strife, all those things could fit right here in this word, trials. James says, far better than considering it something to get angry over, far better than considering it something to get bitter over, far better than to consider it something to fight over, or to grumble about, or to complain, he says, far better than that, consider it all joy. Not if you encounter trials. He knows they're coming. Man, you and I know these are coming. This virus is going to be over at some point. We're going to get through this together, but there's going to be another hardship that's waiting in line. That's the nature of the world that we live in. He says, not if you encounter various trials, when you encounter various trials. Listen, this verse drags really, really well out of the first century when it was written, and and put right down in the midst of our circumstances. Consider, I mean, that's up to us. We don't sit back and and just say, oh, God changed my heart. That's a great prayer, but we have a little something to do with that as well. He says, consider it, you, yourself, as an act of your will, consider it all joy. And you may be sitting there thinking, yeah, easy for him to say. I I told you you'd get offended. (laughs) I told you he would say things that are going to rattle your cage. So why can he say this? Well, look at what it says in verse 3. This is, this is where James really builds well on what he just said. He said, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. You know, I think there's a principle that comes out of this, and, and I hope you'll jot this down. I hope you'll lock it away in your mind in these weeks to come, especially to the point to where it becomes a part of the way you live. And the simple truth is this, that every single trial that we face is a test of faith. It doesn't mean God is against us. He's testing our faith. Now, now, now follow me for a moment on this. Think about that time when you were in school. Some of you may be in school now. Some of you may be in college. You may be in grad school. But you can remember a time when you were in school... <laughs> and you took a test. Now here's what was happening with that test. That, that test was accomplishing a few things. One, that test was reinforcing what you knew to be true. That would be shown by the check marks that were there by every answer that you got right. That test reinforced what you knew to be true. You took the test, you put down what you thought was accurate, and that test reinforced what you knew to be true. Number two, that test also ultimately revealed what was wrong. That was shown by all the red X marks, right? And I had a lot of them through the years when I took tests. And, uh, and every time I'd get a test back, every, every mark of red on that test, every X mark helped me to see. It revealed to me what was wrong. The test showed me what I needed to work on. And and the third thing, not only did it reinforce what I knew was right, not only did it ultimately 
reveal where I was incorrect, where I was wrong, but it also would reposition me to make a change ultimately for the better. Now, here's the thing. James is saying much the same. He says, when you go through a trial, a various trial, whether it's facing the effects of a virus or losing your job or any other thing that we've mentioned or something even outside those boundaries, when you go through a trial, what that test is doing, it is a test, not because God hates you, not because he's against you, but because he's wanting to refine you. That test is going to reinforce what you knew was right all along. That test, that trial is going to reveal things that are wrong, maybe in your thinking or in your behavior. It's going to show you some things that you need to change. And then number three, that test as well at the same time is going to reposition you to live life a little bit differently. So, so let me ask you, let me ask you this question. When you think about what COVID-19 has done in your life, and when you see that as a test that God has brought or God has allowed how ultimately has this particular trial reinforced what you already knew was true? Maybe you found peace in these days, and now after the test, you know that peace has substance because it comes from God. Maybe for you in these days, your hope has been strengthened because you've dug into God's Word, and this trial has strengthened your sense of hope. Maybe for you, ultimately, this trial has reinforced that call that God puts in our lives to gather together as saints, as followers of Jesus. We haven't been able to do that for four weeks or five weeks now. And maybe now this trial has caused you as a believer to think, that's why the Bible says not to forsake gathering together in the book of Hebrews. It's because of this, because we, we, we feel something missing when we're not gathered together. Maybe this trial has, has reinforced some things that you already knew was right. How has it done that? You may want to jot a few things down. This is how I've been shown that, that, that what I believe in my faith is right through this trial. But then on another level, ask yourself, how has this recent trial, the whole coronavirus and everything, all the moving parts that goes with it, how has this particular trial ultimately revealed some things that are out of place in my life? Maybe for some of you, you've realized in your time together as families, <laughs> maybe you've realized that you're more selfish than you thought you were. <laughs> and maybe there's been some conflict come in your family because of your selfishness. I think we could all raise our hand that we've learned some of that. The trial has revealed that weakness in your life. Maybe you found yourself through this virus to have a tendency to focus on everything that's changing and you've become anxious rather than to focus on those truths in Scripture that are unchanging. And this trial has revealed to you, you know what, I need to, I need to, have, I need to have a stronger faith in those things that God has said are never going to change. That He's always with me. He's going to pull me through and he's going to lead me and he's never going to forsake me. Maybe for you it's been this trial specifically that has caused you to, to, uh, to idolize something other than Jesus. Maybe you've idolized a, a position at work or a, or, or a, or a line on, a, you know, on, on the stock market and you've realized in all this trial that, you know what, Jesus isn't as high up on my list as I thought he was. Well, because every test or every trial is a test, well, then you have something to do about that. You have a decision to make. How are you then ultimately going to 
reposition yourself to live in wholehearted devotion to the person of Jesus, surrendered to the truth of his word. It's, it's like it's a marathon. I mean, the Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon. Uh, I, I, I enjoy watching track when it's on TV. It's not on very often. And, uh, but one of the Olympic athletes that just captured me a number of years ago was a, was a sprinter by the name of Usain Bolt. Uh, Jamaican sprinter, fastest man to ever run the face of this earth, at least since times have been recorded. 100-meter sprinter, 200-meter sprinter. Man, when he settles into the blocks back when he was at the peak of his career, whenever Bolt would settle into the blocks for a 100-meter, 200-meter race, there was nobody that could beat him at the height of his career. And not only could they not beat him, but nobody else in history, he was knocking down records and then knocking down his own records like nobody's business. You put him in the blocks in a 100 or 200 race, nobody is going to catch him. But if you put him on the line on the track to run a 1,500 or 3,000 or 5,000 meter race, you know, a 10,000 meter, a 10K, you know, on the track, if you put him at the, you know, at the starting line to run a marathon, he's not going to do well. Why? Because he's not fit for that. He hasn't been groomed for that. He hasn't been trained for that. He will blow the world away from 100 meters to 200 meters, but you put him on a marathon line and he's going to come in dead last against the best of the world because he's not been fit for that. Here's what trials do in your life, Christian. Here's what trials do in my life is that they fit us for a deeper walk with God. They fit us to understand who he is at a deeper level and to see that he is good and that he is powerful and that he is faithful and that he is going to hold true to his promises. That's what trials do. They ultimately are a test of our faith. But the problem is for many of us as believers that we just want the health and we want the wealth and we want the sunshine, not realizing that it's really the hardships and the trials and the difficulties that come that grow us, that grow us the most. You know, there are trees in our community. I don't know where you live when you're watching this, but our church is located on an island. Most of the people who are watching this live in this area or know that, First Baptist Church of the Islands. <laughs> and uh, we've had our share of hurricanes the last four or five years, tropical storms. There are trees on this island that we know are pretty firm and steadfast because they came through Hurricane David in 1979. They came through Hurricane Matthew a few years ago, and they came through her, uh, Hurricane Irma after that, they're still standing, and there's pretty good indication because of that that those trees are going to be okay. Their roots run deep. They've been through the storm, and it's the trials, the tests of your life, man, I'm telling you, that do the same thing. That's why James says, consider it joy. Don't get mad. Don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't shake your fist at God. Don't walk away from your faith. Consider it joy, and I know it's hard. And I know it's easier to consider it something less than joy. But he says, consider it all joy. Look at what he says in the next verse as we begin to head our way out of this scripture. He talks about, that. let's go back to verse 3 again, if we can, real quickly. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Verse 4, he says, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That, that's the goal, right? That is the goal. 
a principle to hang on to here, I think for us to remember as we begin to close, is a very simple principle that I think all of us need to remind ourselves of, that you are not a victim. You are not a victim in this. You're not a victim. God is in control. And no, he doesn't hate you. No, he's not against you, Christian, because of the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Some of you have walked through deep trials, but you're not a victim. God is at work, and he's producing deep faith and a dependence on him, and he's reinforcing the things that you already know, and he's, he's refining those things that, 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 you need to, that you need to keep in mind, that, that maybe you've wandered from. He's, he's strengthening those things. But you have a decision. Am I going to stay tight to him? And am I going to live according to his word? And am I going to trust him? And am I going to try to consider all this joy and even ask him to help me if I struggle? Or are you going to try it a different way? And when all said and done, man, I hope that you and I can look back and say, you know what? I'm closer to him. And I'm a stronger believer. I'm a stronger follower. And I'm more like Jesus. So what are you most wholehearted about today? If you were to identify that one area of life that you would say, that is my wholehearted devotion. It may be family, it may be a career, it may be some passion. But what is my wholehearted devotion? Man, I hope, I hope that today and in this journey through the book of James, that if you're not already, you'll come to the place. And if you are already, you'll go even deeper in being able to say that every detail of every area of my life is lived in wholehearted devotion to a Savior that can even take the worst of trials and draw me closer to Him. As we consider it joy and as we follow Him where He leads. Hey, let's take a moment to pray before we close out with a song this morning. God, we thank you today for the beautiful truth of your word. You used a servant who's going to get in our face, Lord, in these next few weeks. <laughs> but God, you do it because you love us. Sometimes we need our cage rattled. Sometimes we need someone in our face who we know loves us. And you do. Sometimes we need to be reminded that we're on the right track. Just like a test shows us that what we knew was, was right, Lord, sometimes trials remind us that we're on the right track. But God, sometimes they show us their areas that need to be refined where we're, where we're just incorrect in our thinking or we've wandered in our, in our devotion to you. Sometimes trials bring us home again. But God, we have a decision to make. Are we going to count it joy and press in close? Or are we going to get bitter and angry and doubtful and untrusting? God, we just want to be those who are better on the other side than when we went into this storm. And so, Lord, for those of us who know Jesus, we thank you for that grace. Help us to walk in it. God, help us to press in deep to your word. And God, for those who don't know you today that have been watching, listening, Lord, may they see that the, that the trials aren't going to end. It's not going to get any easier. But Lord, the only hope and peace and joy that they can truly have in this world is when they admit their sin to you, Jesus trust that you died and rose to pay for it and when they surrender their lives to you even inviting you Jesus to come and forgive and take over and so God help us to walk in that way every day 
every detail of every area of every life wholeheartedly lived in devotion to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.